Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's sure great to be here. Considering the alternative, I get to hang out with my buddy Jim Shorney. Hey, Jim, good morning. Good morning, Scott. And I get to talk with you folks and such interesting guests. Who's up, you might ask? We've got uh, Pet Talk with Charlene from the Capital Humane Society, followed by Preston Dennett. And uh, he's always got some interesting stories for his segment, The Seen and the Unseen. And then first-time guest, the documentary filmmaker James Fox. He's got a brand-new movie coming out called The Phenomenon that is just um, startling, incredible, and very, very timely. Without further ado, let's go to Charlene and the Capital Humane Society. Hi, Charlene. How are you? Good. Just had to punch a few buttons here. Sometimes the kids overnight get to messing with the board, so we got you there. Hey, it's always great to chat with you here. And, Charlene, tell us more about what's going on at the Capital Humane Society. Well, we are having a critter adoption promotion. So if you're looking for a guinea pig or rabbit, those adoption fees will be reduced by 50%. And we have really nice critters available. I uh, am a fan of Buddha the bunny. He's so (laughs) engaging. Um, So if you like small animals, now might be the right time to adopt. Awesome. How many critters do you have down there right now? Um, I'm not exactly sure. I guess around 10 uh, guinea pigs and rabbits. Guinea pigs are lots of fun. I've had guinea pigs in the past, and it's they're, they're just a joy to see. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, they get so excited, if they and they learn right away who is bringing them those carrot treats, mm-hmm. <laughs> whistling at you and squeaking. They are. They're, they're very fun and entertaining. I've never seen another creature get so excited over a single leaf of fresh lettuce. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yep. So what else is going on down there today? Uh, we are having a lot of animals available for adoption. We have lots of dogs and cats as well as critters. So we're looking forward to having visitors who are interested in adoption. Um, we just, again, have so many that need new and wonderful homes. It's going to be a great day to get out today and go down and see the animals. We're expecting a high of 53 degrees. This oh, is sh- and the sunshine is so nice. Okay, Charlene, I've got uh, cats and kittens for adoption queued up, and let's talk about our first cat or kitten for adoption. Okay, we'll start with Jacob. And Jacob is a bright-eyed cat, all black, about a year old, with long fur. He's really cool, one of our volunteer favorites. When they walk into his colony, he's the first one to come up and say hello and flop over on his side. So he is a a relaxed and wonderful friend. I'm Jacob the cat. Hey, Jacob, how are you, huh? Hey, yo, Jake, give me a beer, will (laughs) you? You'd love to see some folks stop out today. We're going to talk about hours open today and tomorrow. After we talk about a few of your buddies, joining Jacob is Moose, and Moose is about 10 years old, a neutered male, domestic short hair. He's white with black and brown tabby marks, and he's just an adorable cat, and it has a really loud purr that you can hear across the room, so he is looking for a lap to call home. That's an interesting camera angle. Doesn't it look like his hind is about... Three times as big as his head. 
It's just the angle. He's just very the angle. proportioned. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not a moose. He is an actual cat. Hey, so, cat, what's your name? I am Moose. Moose from the mountains. That was joining, good. <laughs> joining Moose from the mountains is... Next up is Taco. And he is a seven-year-old neutered male domestic short hair. He is front declawed, so we do want him to be kept safe as an indoor-only companion. And he is a little shy, so sometimes he's hiding, so you might have to ask for him specifically, and then he'll peek out and say hello. It looks like he's peeking out, wondering if it's safe to stick his nose out. Mm-hmm. Boy, if I think yeah, about tacos, I just start, Charlene and Jim, I just start getting hungry. You don't start <laughs> thinking about a beautiful orange cat? I'm glad you mentioned that. He is orange. He is beautiful. He's our third cat. Jacob Moose from the mountains and Daco. Hey, Charlene, tell the good folks when you're open today and tomorrow. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. And these aren't the only cats. If you go to CapitalHumaneSociety.org, you'll see a whole bunch of other great cats, okay? CapitalHumaneSociety.org. And for you dog lovers, let's talk about a few dogs for adoption. First up, we have Abby, and she's 10 years old, a shepherd mix, about 55 pounds, really, really adorable, looking for a family that wants her charming companionship. Uh, She needs to meet other dogs and kids to make sure she's a good fit for your family, but she will be a very loyal, loving friend. What a pretty girl. Look at that. Uh Gorgeous dog. Okay, Abby, you can see her picture at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Her buddy is? Alex, a two-year-old neutered male Siberian husky, one blue and one brown eye, all white, very energetic, very (laughs) husky-like, needs plenty of exercise and training to keep him stimulated and fit. Um, So Alex is looking for a great new family that we hope might be stopping by today. And we're expecting some snow next week, so if Alex is out in the backyard, you would see this blur of white against white. Beautiful (laughs) dog. Uh, Abby, Alex, and then there's... Little Daryl is next. He's 10 years old, a Yorkshire Terrier mix, and I think that is the cutest picture. Oh, sure. (laughs) I, I love it. Yes, he's shy and sweet and ready to find a family he can trust, and then he can snuggle up with you. Great-looking dog. Take a picture of Daryl. What's that name? Daryl. <laughs> Abby, Alex, and Daryl. Three great dogs. Pictures are up at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. And, Charlene, today in the 50s, tomorrow we might hit 60. Yeah, I know. They're talking about some snow next week. But let's enjoy it while we can, okay? Absolutely. It's a great day to be happy. <laughs> Okay, we'll talk to you again next week, and thank you for all you do. Thank you. Have a great day. Charlene and friends at the Capital Humane Society, make them the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. We had one of our KZUM programmers uh, who passed, Tom Dayton, and uh, his celebration of life is today. It takes place at the zoo bar, and it starts at 3 o'clock with a potluck dinner. And then Katie G. from Kansas City. Yo! from KC will perform from 6 to 9 o'clock p.m. tonight. And um, um, 
fond remembrances and all the best to Tom Dayton, his family, and his many, many friends. Speaking of friends. Hey, next up is the guy with all the cool stories, Preston Dennett. And Preston, you're timely, you're on on the job in spite of the fact I didn't send you a reminder yesterday. All right. Yeah, he was right there on the phone, just uh, almost as fast as Charlene. Hey, thank you so much, Preston, for uh, joining us again. And I've told people that uh, that if there's some sort of a magnet for these really interesting stories of people's encounters with the unexplained, you seem to have part of that that magnet because people seem to just be drawn to you. Um, tell us what's uh, interesting to you. Or what's crossed your desk in the last 30 days? I can tell you it's been busy. I've been contacted by a number of people. Probably the one that I'm most thrilled about right now is this lady from England. Mm. Her name is Faye, Faye Vale. Um, she's had a number of UFO experiences. Her first was when she was like 21 years old, simple sighting, uh, sort of slowly escalated. Uh, she's an artist and uh, started drawing these really amazing images that are very mystical, really beautiful. I'm looking at some of them. They've got what looks like E.T. writing on them. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, the reason she contacted me was because she suffered from glaucoma. And it was not a fun experience for her. She had to have eye drops uh, pretty much every day, regular visits to the doctor. It was not improving. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, she puts out her book, E.T. as artist, which contains her uh, UFO-inspired drawings, very beautiful drawings. And no sooner does this book come out, she goes to the doctor, and the doctor's completely shocked. He's got a says, "I've got really good news for you. Do you want to hear it?" She says, "Yeah." He says, "Your glaucoma has disappeared. I can't explain it. Oh, pretty gone. Completely gone. Yeah. Your vision is normal." That just doesn't happen. <laughs> right? She sent me her doctor's uh, notes, um, you know, from the doctor's reports. Uh, so I've got the proof right here in front of me uh, that this is, you know, not something she's imagining, certainly. I guess that um, means they liked her book. That's <laughs> exactly what she thought. Uh, she feels like, you know, this has been a mission she's been on, and uh, as soon as she completed it, they gave her this as kind of a a reward. She can't, you know, link this healing to a specific experience, but she's absolutely convinced it's related somehow because it's just so unexplainable. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, you know, because that's not the only, I've got like 15 eye healing cases documented and one is of glaucoma. Uh, same type of thing. A lady up in, gosh, I think it's in Maine or Vermont was suffering from deteriorating vision, went to the doctor. He's like, I'm really sorry, you've got glaucoma. Your uh, optic nerve is just getting thinner and thinner. And she had an experience with her husband, who is a contactee. Uh, she woke up and heard the chattering of a bug over her. I think I may have told you this story at one point. But at any rate, she went back to the doctor, and her optic nerve had thickened up to almost normal. So, yeah, here's more evidence that ETs, at least in some cases, are all for, you know, to help people. 
certainly they seem to be healing people. You wrote a book um, about a year and a half ago that was a magnum opus on this subject. Um, if I've got the title right from memory, The Healing Power of UFOs. That's right. Yep, 300 documented cases, just the tip of the iceberg I'm finding out. Because, you know, I put out a book on a number of subjects, undersea UFO objects, getting waves and waves of reports on that, schoolyard UFOs, still getting contacted Great with more book. people who have had that happen. Great book. And, uh, yeah, there's healing stuff. So, you know, I think these projects are done. And what happens is I've just sort of opened up Pandora's box mm-hmm. and flooded with additional reports on all of these different subjects. Yeah, folks, the, the Healing Power of UFOs, the book that I mentioned uh, by Preston, is, I think, vitally important uh, and an uh, excellent contribution to the literature on the subject because we went through a, b- a better part of a 20-year period where all we heard were uh, negative reports of abductions, people being taken against their will, these mechanical, uh, small, gray uh, beings that showed no emotion, that sort of operated with impunity, nobody was safe, um, etc. And these reports were going on, but they didn't have an outlet. Nobody was hearing them, nobody was paying any attention. And thank goodness that your first book that you wrote in your series and now the healing power of UFOs, that you've done such an excellent job of breaking that myth open and showing people that there's a great deal of, if not benevolent interaction, at least interaction at times, that appears to really help people mentally, physically, and emotionally. Um, I don't know if I've asked you this question before, Preston, but if you had a personal contact experience have you ever thought about a few questions that you uh, that you want to ask? Oh, sure. I've got a million. <laughs> are you kidding? Like, pretty much the standard ones. You know, where did you come from? Why are you here? You know, what's it all about? Tell us you know, about human history. Why Why do we look like you? Why do you look like us? Um, you know, what's my connection with you guys? Do you uh, really oh, like yeah. strawberry ice cream and Tibetan music? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of questions we still have. This is still a really new phenomena. Um, it's funny, I was looking over my latest book, Onboard UFO Encounters, to see, you know, Good. how are people interpreting their experience? And what I found is I have three cases in that book where people didn't like it. It was an unhappy experience for them. Um, one person at least feels that it's a demonic phenomena. And uh, looking at the other cases, there's at least five there. I'm out of 15, who say, these are my friends, I love them, it's the best thing that ever happened to me, and I couldn't be happier. And the rest, you know, about seven or eight, are kind of neutral, they've had good experiences and positive experiences, Mm -hmm. Uh, don't feel they're evil, uh, but, you know, have had some negative experiences with it, and some fear, but have mostly overcome it. So yeah, what I'm finding is this is sort of they're very much like us, you know. Um, there are a few bad apples out there, but by and large, no, they're just people like us. Okay, so this this woman in England, um, she's got to be ecstatic over the healing and being released from having glaucoma. Yeah, she absolutely is. You know, she's 
let's see, born in 1947, you know, has been dealing with this for quite some time. Uh, so to have this happen, you know, now, in coincidence with her, you know, book, E.T. as Art, coming out on Amazon, uh, not a coincidence. She's just absolutely convinced that this is meant to be. And, uh, yeah, she couldn't be happier about it. Um, she's one of the people who do take a very positive look towards what's happened to her. She's had a number of face-to-face encounters with various types of ETs. Uh, so, yeah, she couldn't be happier. You know, that's an interesting sidebar. Um, how are they, these visitors, this assemblage of beings that are intelligent, how are they communicating with us? Um, we are, you know, verbally based. To some extent, we have the ability to kind of read, you know, body language and pick up on the environment in a room, that sort of thing. Uh, but there are other ways of instructing and teaching. Uh, how is it that these beings are are communicating? Oh, so many different ways. You know, some people do have face-to-face direct contact or taken on board. You know, it's not ambiguous. But there's a lot of people who have you know, sightings with telepathic messages mm-hmm. um, or just weird signs. Like they, you know, the lady I'm talking about, had this weird thing happen right after her book came out. She was happy. She was celebrating. She was baking cookies. Um, she used up all the, uh, gosh, the flour in her uh, not baking soda in her little jar. And she emptied it out and turned it over so it wouldn't collect any moisture, went back to it, and there was a little happy face drawn on the bottom of it. Mm. Um, She sent me a picture of it, and I'm looking at it like, well, that looks like somebody drew that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It just can't happen naturally. I, I, I mean, I suppose it could, but I don't think so. And she sure doesn't. She's like, somebody put that there. I think it must have been them. I don't know. And I have to laugh because I've heard this thing before. There was one lady, uh, I interviewed Ann Witherspoon. She had an experience with ETs, come into her bedroom, talked. It was a totally conscious, very benevolent experience. Uh, she wakes up the next morning and she's missing her gold necklace, which she had gone to bed with. Mm-hmm. Looks around, finds it on the microwave cart in the kitchen, and it's in this weird design that spells out the letters a U. Not sure what that means. She's thinking maybe gold, or you know, cause that's a chemical symbol for gold or astronomical unit. It's another thing she's thinking. Australia. Uh, but <laughs> hard to say. Uh, but she says there's just no way this is an accident. She went to bed with it, you know, and now it's on her microwave cart. It's impossible. Somebody did this. It's one of these weird signs they put out to communicate to people with some sort of little calling card. Like, we're here, or I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. not exactly sure what's going on here. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, as a just a real short sidebar, uh, maybe these beings have gone through, either personally or with other cultures, what happens when a more advanced culture meets with a less advanced culture and there are some real dangers there that we've seen in our own history here uh, on Earth. Uh, 
maybe they're aware of that. And instead of just, you know, doing what people say, why don't they land on the White House lawn? Maybe they're doing these little things here and there uh, all over the place to slowly bring people into the awareness that indeed there, there is other intelligence out there. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's the pattern I saw when you know, researching the schoolyard UFO encounters. Mm-hmm. Like, how can we let the world know we're real without, you know, creating front page headlines and making everyone panic? Hey, let's go to kids. <laughs> they'll see it. They'll remember it. They'll be impacted by it. But no one's going to believe them. Not in any, you know, big way. So, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think they're wiser than to just come and land and cause all kinds of people freaking out running for the hills or grabbing their guns or worshipping them, as apparently may have happened in ancient history. Uh, So, yeah, I think they learned their lesson and are trying to sort of lift us up into the galactic age in a way that's as smooth as possible. Uh, So it's, again, an exciting time to be alive, for sure. I do think it's going to happen. Whether it's in our lifetime or not, I can't see this world being the same as it is now, a hundred years from now. Right. You know, I'm feeling, they're not going away. The UFO reporting centers have just this steady escalation of reports. It's becoming almost a geometric progression. We're going to reach a point where this can't be denied any longer. Now, I I wrote a a short uh, uh, article on social media this week that I talked about there being uh, a number of timetables in this. You know, there's the timetable of the secret keepers. That's the part of the government and the military um, that has contacts worldwide that's slowly releasing the information at the same time, throwing in a whole bunch of chaff and a whole bunch of disinformation, knowing that the truth is going to eventually float to the top. Uh, two steps forward, one step back, that sort of thing. Then we have the timetable from these visitors, from these beings. Sometimes those two timetables parallel and work together. Sometimes they don't. And then, Preston, uh, there's a third timetable, and that is the timetable of a God or the Creator. And again, sometimes our timetables are in sync with His, and sometimes there's something totally unexpected that happens. So we have a number of variables going on. Yes, I agree, my friend. It's a very exciting time to be alive. Um, since my 1974 sighting, uh, you know, I've, <laughs> my friends would tell you this, I've never been the same. And I've lived with that knowledge uh, every single day. And uh, it's uh, greatly shaped and influenced my, my life here. Um, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? I think I'm going to heat me up a little homemade breakfast burrito after we're done talking, watch a little TV. I just recently got my house painted, so I'm going to go outside and look at that and enjoy it. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, just relax, work a little on uh, getting the corrections done for my latest book, which is still not out yet, but darn it's close. So, yeah, it's a good good weekend. Onboard UFO Encounters. Uh, Preston Dennett... If you go to any search engine and type in Preston Dennett, bingo, he's going to pop up. And take a look at his website. And do you have a speaking engagement coming up? Ah, uh, yeah, thank you. I do. It's up at UFOCon 
in Northern California, San Francisco area, on the weekend of February 20th to the 23rd. Sure. I'll be presenting on Schoolyard UFO Encounters. There's a lot of really great speakers up there. Uh, the guy who's above the Tic Tac incident, uh, he's going to be speaking on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Lovelace, who wrote The Devil's Den, he's going to be there. Um, Misha Johnston, Melinda Leslie, a bunch of great speakers. I'm honored to be among them. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, I predict that your uh, presentation is going to be stellar among all those folks there. So um, if you folks are in the Northern California area, uh, UFO Con in late February, and watch for Preston Dennett. Okay, my friend, all the best to you, and may the muse always be really close to you. Oh, shucks. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you for all your good work. It's always a delight, Preston, to talk with you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Preston Dennett, again, it's so easy to find him. Type his name into uh, your favorite search engine. He's going to pop right up. His uh, uh, current book that is just a little bit away from publication, I've had a chance to look to, uh, at an advanced copy. It's called Onboard UFO Encounters. Preston Dennett, he joins us every first Saturday of the month. And this is the month, Jim, by the way, happy February. Happy February. That we have five weeks because we have a leap day, Mm -hmm. February 29th. And joining us on that Saturday, the fifth Saturday, uh, is going to be um, a a brand new person that has a brand new segment. And it's going to be real fun to... To hear from him and yeah. what's that's what, what that's about. He's a Nebraska native, as yeah. I understand. Um, I'm going to go to some music here. We'll do the out, uh, announcements. We're going to get uh, our main guest James Fox on the line here. Folks, stay tuned. If you haven't seen um, his trailer, The Phenomenon, this would be a great time to uh, to look at that. If you go to thephenomenonfilm.com. You'll find lots of information there. James Fox coming up in just a couple of minutes on Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Stay tuned. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's sure great to be here with you. My buddy Jim Shorty, he and I have got some Jack Reacher coffee. We're enjoying the show so far, the conversation with Charlene and with uh, Preston Dennett. And now joining us is a first-time guest, uh, Paul. Uh, excuse me, James Fox. I met James uh, at one of the uh, Starworks USA UFO conferences that Paula Harris puts on. And he's a articulate, uh, dynamic, engaging young guy. Um, as I get older, most of the people There's now are most younger. Most everybody, than, yeah, I've noticed I that too. Uh, he's done three critically acclaimed UFO documentaries, and now he's got a fourth. Uh, 50 Years of Denial, Out of the Blue, I know what I saw, and this brand new one that's called The Phenomenon. So welcome, James Fox. It's great to have you here. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I, I have to be honest with you. I usually decline doing morning interviews because I get to bed so late during production and stuff. But last night, I actually got a good night's sleep for the first time in probably three years. Oh, it's you've got to be so excited, too. I mean, this is... The phenomenon is what six six years of your life, almost seven. Wow! And you're seeing yeah, it I now. Started, in the fin- had, well, so the film would have been would have been released 
in June or July, but the distribution company had recommended a 5.1 Dolby surround mix because it's going to be in theaters. So I've gone through so much to get to where we are today mm -hmm. with the film. I decided that, you know, I should really do that. So I looked into it. I got a sound engineer on board. And, of course, once he looked at it, he was like, oh, this is going to take me six weeks. And, uh, and, and rather costly. So I, I had to borrow more money to get the thing done. But in any case, the wait will have been worth it. So, so it got bumped forward the release date to September 1st. And we are... Which just a couple extra months. We are so excited for you, uh, James. Um, I've talked with, um, I've done the show now for 35 years. I've talked to other authors and filmmakers, and there is that period of waiting, that expectancy. Um, I hope that you receive the attention and the acclaim that, that you rightly deserve. I love your past work. Um, uh, oh, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I work really hard. I mean, people... People are like, God, it takes so long every time you make a movie. Like, Out of the Blue took me seven years. Mm -hmm. uh, I Know What I Saw took four and a half, five years. Um, Fifty Years of Denial was four and a half years. Uh, Pretty Slick took me five years. And now this film, uh, just about... In fact, when, it, when it's released, it'll be over seven years from concept to delivery. And you've got a, a little boy and a wife. How, how's your family doing? Great. They're really happy that I'm almost done. <laughs> Dad's my dad, back. My son goes, my son goes, this is all my son's ever known. He's five and a half, coming up on six in May. And he's like, Daddy, when are you going to finish that dumb movie you've been working on? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. Because that's all he knows. Dude, his whole life, I mean, Daddy's working on this movie. It's like, Jesus, can you get it done already? <laughs> it's really funny. It's really funny. But um, I am very very pleased on the outcome, and I think that uh, that the audience will be as well. I don't care how skeptical anyone is. Mm -hmm. um, this film, uh, there's no way anyone's going to walk out of this theater and thinking there's nothing but swamp gas and weather balloons to the phenomenon. I, I guarantee it. And I want to give you a public acclaim early on here, James. I told you this privately, but I heard year, years ago a Larry King show that you were one of the panelists along with one or two other oh, debunkers. And um, you were respectful, you were polite, but you didn't allow them to pull you into their game. Instead, you redirected by asking Larry King questions, by directing the conversation back to him. And it was very, very effective. Uh, it was immediately apparent to the listeners and, and viewers who was the intelligent guy besides Larry King on the set? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's really sweet of you. You know, I try not to engage like that because they'll try to divert the attention. Like, like for instance, I'm, I know what we're going to be up against with this film coming out because we've got very high-level government and military officials. Oh, I know like you do. No one's ever seen associated with a UFO film. Recognizable household name. So there's going to be some pushback. From the scientific community, but we address the science too because we've got Dr. Jacques Vallée who walked us through the history of it just to get it right. Jacques like it's never gotten totally right. No one's ever gotten it right. So Jacques sat in the edit room with us. He was the advisor to Steven Spielberg in the making of Close Encounters. He's the intellectual heavyweight uh, on the topic of, of UFOs mm -hmm. in in the world. Um, and so we were incredibly fortunate to have his 
sage advice and counseling and, and guidance throughout the whole process. But uh, I know that we're going to be under attack, and they're probably going to be like, oh, you know, aliens and distance for, you know, we're not claiming any of that in this movie. We're putting the evidence down for the audience to decide what they saw, some of the science behind it, some of the reasons for the government secrecy, the policy shift in 53, all those types of the aspects of the phenomenon, and allowing the audience to make up their own mind. We're not saying extraterrestrial. We're not saying ET visitation. It's just, here's the fact. You can figure it out. We're just as baffled as anybody else. Mm -hmm. James, I've got the trailer here. Given the fact that we are listeners and viewers on radio, I'd like to try to play this phenomenon trailer for the audience. Would that be okay with you? Please, I'd love it. Okay, do you want me to leave your mic open? Sure, I'll be quiet. Well, no, 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 I wasn't. Uh, if you want to add anything as this goes by, you can do so. I'm going to go ahead and leave your mic open, and we'll start this thing here. If I've got everything set up correctly, everybody listening, you know, cross your fingers. There are cases that are not explainable in conventional terms that have been made by credible observers of relatively incredible things. When you got right up to it, it lit up. Was this a warning? Was this an attempt to communicate? Felt scared. I was running and playing, and then I saw this maroon color in the sky. It was not anything from this earth. He was looking at all of us. They're trying to communicate. They were reaching out to us. There is an immense array of unanswered questions and an urgent need to get to the bottom of it. The public has a right to know. My God! The question is no longer if they are here, but why. What are they doing? What do they want from us? What are their motivations? For over 75 years, there have been sightings in the sky. The UFO shut down several missile silos in Montana. Thousands of witnesses worldwide. It had to be a data collection. I'm sure they scanned the warhead. Just kind of hovering there. Never changed its longitudinal axis. And then it goes poof and it takes off off the side. And high-level cover-ups. The government was covering up what happened at Roswell. Hiding these dark secrets. I was told there wasn't anything there when I knew there was. People need to know there is something else out there. Yes, there had been visitation, crashed craft, material recovered. Shouldn't we be spending some money to study all these phenomena? I knew this was breaking news for the front page of the New York Times. They were trying to communicate, trying to tell us something. Now it's time to tell people about it. These things are real. They're here. This is happening now. Wow. Jim, what'd you think of that? That it looks pretty well, awesome. You, you know, I, I was involved in the, in the process of making that. I, I, first of all, as a filmmaker and an editor. Wow. I couldn't. I, yeah, I couldn't produce. We we hired uh, 
Buddha Jones, the company in Hollywood that just did the last trailer for Brad Pitt and DiCaprio, that film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So these guys are top-notch, and one of the main reasons why we got to them is because George Knapp went to college with the owner, John Long. I'll be darned. So George made the introduction, and yeah, because normally, I mean, it was very expensive and time-consuming. It took four months, a team of 12 people, and an orchestra in London. So it was a very big, very big operation, and uh, maybe longer than four months, but at least four months. And there was a lot of little you know, replacing. And, you know, some people are going to say, oh, it looks like some rehashed, uh, you know, old UFO stuff. Well, first of all, there's a ton of new material in this film. I guarantee even Jacques was like, where did you find this stuff? <laughs> but, but I used it because I realized that we are penetrating a much broader audience. We're transcending the UFO community with this film. Agreed. And they're not familiar with that material. And that material is powerful. That's why it's been used. But it'll be new to them. It'll be new to a lot of people. In fact, most people who, who see this film. So I I, um, I also heard a voice in there. It's funny. I, I noticed much more because it was just audio only um, of the landing case in Australia. Um, and uh, I wanted to... That case probably wouldn't have been featured in this film if it wasn't for Paula Harris. And then she led me to this gentleman named James Rigney, and then of course, sure. Jane Ryan, and and it just snowballed from there. And and, uh, and then we spent a month in, in touring around in Australia, and that that's like one of my favorite cases now. Not not the favorite, but sort of top five. James Rigney is a friend of mine, and he said uh, in a private note to give you heck this morning. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> um, this is this well, is. We had a, we had a really good time traveling around Australia. I mean, we really did. We uncovered some wonderful things and had some great adventures. And I have the fondest memories of, of the Australian crew. They were they treated me so well. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm forever grateful. I will be back. Uh, this is uh, James Fox, the documentary filmmaker, and uh, the phenomenonfilm.com is probably the easiest way to find this. And you're going to really enjoy, uh, that's the trailer that you just heard here. The visuals are even more stunning. Again, it's thephenomenonfilm.com. I'm Scott Colborn. This is Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And so you finished Out of the Blue. That was a lengthy process in 2014. What was the genesis or the seed for what we now know as your new film, The Phenomenon? I wanted, first of all, so we did two versions of As the Blue. We did a version which we finished in 2002, and then it was picked up by NBC Universal, broadcast on the Sci-Fi Channel, and then three years later, the uh, the um, option had expired, and they notified me that they, weren't, they didn't intend to renew the broadcast option, so, they, uh, so I owned it again, and I spent a couple more years on it, in which I released that, I probably released the, the newer version around 2014, but it actually was done closer to 2010 or something because I it, there was a conflict of interest with the film. I know what I saw that was that was premiering that sold to A and E that aired on History Channel two hour a two hour special. Um, but in each one of those efforts, I had failed. I I, I tried with uh, back in the 90s uh, to put a UFO film in theaters, uh, failed miserably. 
I tried again with Out of the Blue. I failed again. I revamped the film, uh, as I just stated, Out of the Blue, for a theatrical, and I failed. Then I tried again with <clears throat> I Know What I Saw, and uh, and I got very close. It, it was looked at and um, from Lionsgate, the, the, actually the CEO of Lionsgate, and he loved it. He was apparently really moved by it. But as it went up the chain, uh, it got to acquisitions, and they said, ah, the production quality is subpar, and unfortunately we're going to have to take a pass. And that was a devastating blow for me. Uh, I mean, I, when you get to the end of a long project, you're already pretty you know, spent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then to have that you know, possibility get as close as it did and then pulled out from under me, um, I was pretty devastated. In fact, my, I remember my father, he was like, yes, son, and we sold it to Annie, and, you know, it went on two-hour special, and I, was just, I wasn't I was even happy about it. I was just disappointed, and, and my dad's like, you know, I'll never forget it. You know, my dad has since then passed, but he said, God bless son, him. yeah, but look at what you, he goes, son, yeah, but look at what you did do. You know, you produced this, you sold it to Annie, it's a two-hour, you know, and I was just, yeah, I know, but I just failed. <clears throat> and then, I wasn't sure I had it in me to make another one, you know, because it really takes a lot out of you, man. I'm not kidding. It's it's pretty intense. It's a hell of a birthing process. But I said that I will not make the same mistakes as I did the last 20 years. If I can't afford it, I will wait until I will raise the money and wait until I can. Top notch. I hired a gentleman named Dave West, a National Geographic photographer. He was our DP. We traveled around the world together. He really cares about photography and making it beautiful, and every shot was carefully crafted. We had drones, aerial footage, um, beautiful time-lapse sunset. I mean, just we wanted it to be really beautiful, hired professional audio and lighting. like just like a 60 minutes production, and that, mm-hmm. that's why it's getting theatrical, because we went the extra mile. In fact, we went the extra 10,000 miles. Mm-hmm. 75 years of history uh, to recount in a way that communicates to a larger community than just the UFO fans the importance of understanding the phenomenon. And uh, again, I I hope that this is seen by so many people. We've got a a couple of uh, screens here in Lincoln, uh, the... Mary Ritma Ross Film Theater, and I've sent you, in care of your website, contact information for the director of that, Danny Laidley. So we'd love to see it showing here in Lincoln, too. And there's something about a big screen that is just so impactful. And as you said now, James, you spent the money and the time to have that experience really be uh, uh, given or shared by the audience. This is more than just a single camera and two talking heads. Oh yeah, no, this is this. Believe me, this is you know sixty minutes uh, front line. I mean, this is it, it really. It's this is not. And then the archive material that we dug up, we got stuff from the night from Lee Spiegel's nineteen seventy eight United Nations conference mm-hmm. uh, event. That that was. That, Lee had never seen any of it. Of course, I had never seen any of it. We didn't even know it existed. Jacques had never seen anything. It was just gone forever. We got that. We got statements in color from 66, stuff from the 50s. I mean, 
trust me on this one, we have never before seen archive material. And it's one thing to talk about something. It's another thing to show it. So you'll, you will be watching history. We don't intervene in it at all. Let me just show you. My father used to tell me, son, the secret to success is show, no tell. Well, that's what we did in this one. James, we're going to take the top of the hour break, and we'll come back with more uh, conversation. And again, I know your incredibly busy schedule. I want to thank you again for being up with us here. And uh, we'll come back to you in a couple minutes here, okay? Thank you. James Fox, wow. I'm just, you know, Jim just sitting here. I'm getting excited. I can tell. You know, this is, <clears throat> this is really something. This is, this is one of the first films... Um, this goes way beyond a sim- uh, simple documentary, and uh, I and am, uh, you've got that big grin on your face. Oh man, <laughs> this is it, man! Uh, and we've got so many people listening too that are hearing, perhaps for the first time, some of this information. We'll come back and talk about some of the things that at least I observed from the trailer, and uh, of course uh, interact with with James here, Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena with Jim Shorney. We've got uh, Jack Reacher coffee in our cup. James Fox is our main guest. James, are you a coffee guy? Coffee? Are you? Do you drink coffee? Oh, I love coffee. Are you me? It's, uh, it's the uh, it's the energy propulsion behind the <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Hey, so the the trailer ends with a really provocative statement by Chris Mellon. If you folks don't know who Chris Mellon is, he's the former Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. And this is a quote, these things are real. They are here. This is happening now. Can I have you respond to that, uh, James? Absolutely, yeah. um, How did you get Chris Mellon? Oh, it took months. Uh, it was uh, Jacques Vallée pulled a lot of strings behind the scenes. Um, uh, yeah, there's a story behind every image, every interview, I, honestly. So Christopher Mellon, which I didn't realize this, but he was instrumental in getting those tapes that all showed up at the front page of the New York Times. Uh, those infamous, now infamous uh, Navy uh, tapes of UFOs that were blown up around the world. They, they found a little loophole and um, and took advantage of that loophole, loophole and then walked them out of the Pentagon. Uh, that was Christopher Mellon, primarily. There was another guy involved as well, but um, mm-hmm. pretty incredible move. And again, they didn't break the law, but they found a loophole and they took advantage of that loophole. Christopher Mellon was like, disappointed with the New York... I, I found all this out when I met with him in Washington, D.C. He was disappointed with the New York Times, and I thought, well, gosh, they, they did a pretty good story. It got a lot of traction. It was catapulted around the world. And he said, yeah, mm-hmm, but they got the story wrong. And I said, oh, well, what, what's the story? He's like, well, they should have put more emphasis on the fact that these things are real. They're here. This is happening now. I said, well, okay, he goes, case in point, 2015 off the East Coast, they're going to in and out of our ocean. 
270 plus days out of the year. We're just, we just leave them alone because we can't even, there's nothing we can do about it it's happening right now. Wow. Could you, James, just back up and say again what you just said? In 2015. Yeah, 2015, and maybe even more current, that, that is what I do know. They're going in and out of the ocean in the same spot, same place, uh, I think 200 plus 70 years, 70 days out of the year, um, and they just leave them alone. There's nothing they can do. They can't, they can't intercept them. They can't stop them. They don't, there's nothing. So there's... Just pretend like they're not there, I guess. My friend, are you interested in going on a deep-sea fishing trip? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. He brought up the point, too, with members of Congress. There's been behind-the-scenes stuff going on. But he did bring up the fact that um, if they had a flag, a Russian flag or a Chinese flag, that would be an immensely different story. Really? But they don't. Well, yeah. Just think about it. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, that, that, that's what he's talking about when he says that at the end. That's what he's talking about. And I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that he knows that, you know, he, he didn't reveal. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've uh, m- uh, mentioned Jacques Vallée, who is at least a, a dean right now of ufology. Uh, he's, uh, ladies and gentlemen, champion for many years, a broader interpretation of of conjecture on the phenomenon that is not limited to just extraterrestrial visitations. And so he says it could be much more. Uh, Before I ask you a few more questions here about your film, let me run something by you, James, and get your take on this. Do you think that the secret keepers, that apparatus who has been trying to maintain the cover-up, at the same time slowly leaking stuff out, do you think that one of the reasons they're afraid is because if they admit to the UFO phenomenon, there is so much other stuff that's intertangled in this that also is going to come out of the box? Um, psychic dreaming, ESP, precognition, um, all the stuff that seems to go along with just seeing a UFO. Uh, is that a fair assessment, or am I way off base? Well. No, no. I, it, well, Jacques had said to me at one point, and it took me a while to understand what he meant, but he said, James, think of the secrecy more of a question of what the government doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, they could reveal what they do know, but that's going to open up a floodgate of inquiries to which they won't have responses. What I've, I've gotten closer, uh, and this has taken 25 years, sort of evolution of my I respect that. thought process, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's speculation, obviously, but based on information that I've been getting from a lot of very reliable sources. <clears throat> I'm more of the camp now that this seems to be an omnipresent intelligence that has the ability to manifest itself in a multitude of ways. Mm-hmm. If there's a psychic element behind it, I could give you 150 examples from people I've interviewed, including fighter pilot, fighter pilots, that these things read their minds. Um so, you know, it might be more of an interdimensional or hyperdimensional or something. Maybe it's not ET visitation, or maybe it's all of the above. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it's here, and it's real, and it's not just mechanical. Again, folks, Chris Mellon, the former Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, uh, at the end of this trailer, he says, these things are real, they are here, this is happening now. James Fox, the documentary filmmaker, is our special guest this morning. 
And the link again to look at this trailer and to keep abreast of further developments, it's thephenomenonfilm.com. I'm Scott Colborn. You're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Former Senator, excuse me, former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. This is not somebody, James, that you called up on the phone. You actually had to go through a number of steps to get him. Uh, what was he like in person? That was months and months and months of preparations. <clears throat> when it happened, about five minutes before he was to arrive in Las Vegas, uh, we almost, and I won't go into the story right now because it doesn't matter, but we almost lost it. I mean, it was as close as you could possibly get. And when he got there, I was told that there were certain things he was going to talk about and others he wouldn't. He was going to be rather cautious. He had all these handlers and security. and I mean, it was a big deal. When he arrived, you knew he was in the room. Um, a very important guy. And uh, we got along really well. You know, it was like, you know, we had all the cameras and everything ready to roll, obviously. When he stepped in the room, all we had to do is push record mm-hmm. because <clears throat> we had a very limited time period with him. But one of my favorite moments in the entire film happened during that sit-down interview, and it's when I said to him, I asked him a very poignant question about evidence, something that we've all suspected, that uh, there's a lot more that hasn't been revealed. Mm-hmm. In fact... And I asked him that question, like, are you saying that there's a lot of it, there's more evidence that hasn't seen the light of day? And he pauses, he takes, picks up his bottle of water, takes the cap off, takes a sip, puts the cap back on, and he says, I'm saying that most of the evidence hasn't seen the light of day. And that really, like, <laughs> blew my mind. I mean, I literally remember sitting there going, this is big. <laughs> it's really... Because it's like, it's what we've all suspected, and you're getting it from someone in a position to know. I mean, it's the closest thing to disclosure as I've ever Mm -hmm. been part of. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, former majority leader in the Senate, Harry Reid, was the guy that was secretly helping fund UFO research taking place through the military and parts of the government. Um, I'm going to ask you to speculate here, uh, James. He had some driving interest in doing that. Did you ever uncover what that was? What was his motivation for doing that? Well, he's got a good relationship um, with Robert Bigelow. Okay. Um, They're both from Nevada. Of course, Robert is a very influential, powerful figure in Nevada and course senator reed and even though that they're opposite sides of the aisle uh they had a very good relationship very good friendship and i know that reed has had an interest in the phenomenon for quite some time and i guess my understanding again is rudimentary if you really want to know what happened george knapp's the guy to talk to mm-hmm. but my understanding is that uh that uh there was some activity going on in nevada particular activity some paranormal activity and and Bigelow wanted to, you know, look into it further with a government contract, along with UFOs and just in general. And I think Reed decided one day to do it. And he had bipartisan support, mm-hmm. which we talked about, both Republican, a Republican senator and a, and a Democratic senator. And they and they went at it. 
And he said the level of resistance from the intelligence communities was was unbelievable. I mean, he said there was a pushback that was significant, but they did it anyway. On camera is John Podesta, the White House Chief of Staff for uh, President Clinton and an advisor to uh, our President Barack Obama. Uh, how was John Podesta to to talk with you in person? He made the. He's got a great sense of humor. Really, really likable character. Funny, easygoing, but smart as a whip. And uh, and he's really funny. You know, I, I talked to him. He talks about the whole Clinton administration going after Roswell and the Rockefeller Initiative and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he starts laughing. You know, he's like, "You mean to tell me?" You want me to put my neck out on UFOs and risk my career? Are you out of your mind? <laughs> He's like, but that's the reality behind the scenes taking place. And he, he really adds a moment of a beautiful moment of levity at the piece that really humanizes him and, and their efforts. And it's beautiful, really amazing. And, um, yeah, he just talks about the fact that the Clinton administration went after Roswell with the guidance and encouragement of... Lawrence Spellman Rockefeller, and um, we have all the documents, and um, the Secretary of the Air Force at the time, Sheila Widnall, talks about the, the crash at Roswell. So we go to Roswell. Like, I've never... Roswell's such a hot-button issue. It's something to, to, to be generally, in my opinion, we generally have avoided in the past because, A, everyone's heard it, been there, done that, okay... But we really stick our teeth into it. And Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt really helped guide us and get just the facts. Exactly what happened. No peripheral stuff. No, none of that. And it, funny enough, uh, I had a screening of 120 people at a theater. <clears throat> private screening in Sonoma. And I couldn't believe it. Like, half the theater was like, even though they've heard of Roswell a million times, oh, that section on Roswell. That was my favorite in the whole movie. Be I said, really? <laughs> I was like, really? They're like, yeah, nobody's ever spelled it out this way. It's so easy to understand. And it really is, actually. We found archival material, interviews of Jesse Marcel, and uh, and we got interviews of both people posing in the um, press photos uh, with the fake debris on the ground, um, DeBose and Marcel. We have testimony from both of them walking you through it. It's pretty remarkable. I, I, I really enjoyed it as well. Speaking of Roswell, you've got Bill Richardson, the New Mexico governor and former U.S. Energy Secretary, uh, who obviously is a point person there in the political world uh, in New Mexico. Uh, there has been speculation, broad speculation, that uh, former Congressman Adam Schiff who had really pushed for release of information that he may have been um, taken out, that somehow he was um, introduced to a virulent strain uh, of cancer that took his life. Do you think it's a coincidence that I put him in the trailer? Yeah. I no, 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 no. I shouldn't say yeah. But I understand. I understand. Yeah. I, yeah. I put him in the trailer because I remember when he was fighting the good fight. I remember that, and I'm sure you do too. Yep. And then I and then I watched him get cancer and die. Now I'm not saying that 
he was taken out or wasn't taken out. But boy, the timing was pretty scary on that one. Yep. He was an elected representative that was exposing what was going on behind the scenes publicly. And then he gets cancer and dies. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, again, I'm not going to tout that whole thing. that We don't even mention any of that in the movie. But that did at the time. And I went great lengths to find the interview and license the interview from CNN at the time uh, because he was a hero. I would agree with that. He was a guy that uh, that probably saw political ramifications for what he was about to do care. and said that uh, the truth matters. Yes, and he did. Uh, again, I'm not trying to butter you up, James, but this is, again, uh, part of why I respect you is that I think with you, from having met you in Laughlin, Nevada, and our correspondence, I think truth matters for you, too. Oh, absolutely. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And getting it right. You know, that's why it took as long as it did. We wanted to get it right. We knew this was potentially our time. And and Jacques did, too. And I listened to Jacques, you know, very carefully. And I followed his guidance and his advice. That guy knows what the hell he's talking about. You know, you know? You- and... Um, you know, James, you are in Sorry. a very exclusive club because I can't think of more than a small handful of people that Jacques has allowed into his uh, interior sphere of, of influence. Uh, he keeps a very distant perspective uh, for a number of reasons, and you're one of the few people that he's allowed in there. Lee Spiegel is the one that introduced us, and, and he was very cautious. But we developed a friendship. I introduced him to some of the backers uh, of the project that impressed him a lot. And um, and slowly over the next several years, we became very close. And he's got a wonderful sense of humor, and he's such a wonderful person. I, I love the guy. I mean, I really mean that. He's funny. He's witty. He's wicked intelligent. I mean, my God. Just a whole new level of bright that I've never been exposed to. He's, he's one of one of my heroes, and I was, was an absolute privilege and an honor to be um, to have worked with him. Many years ago, he and um, Dr. Jalen Hynek co-authored a book called the "Invisible College," and they were asking other academics to join them in the study of this mystery. And uh, you've got a, a, towards the end of the trailer, you've got somebody uh, saying, and I think it was Senator Harry Reid, that don't you think we should be investigating this, this mystery? And so Jacques, early on, put a lot of things on the table, a lot of personal risks, and joined Heineck and said, yes, we should. There's something going on here. We should study this. You know, I didn't realize this. This is one of the things that was uncovered in my time with Jacques. We, we spent <clears throat> a lot of time on Socorro. I actually spent five mm-hmm. years going back and forth to Socorro, New Mexico. I met, I met Lonnie Zamora's wife, Mary, and daughter Diane, his son Michael, his co-workers, the retired sheriff. I mean, um, and I'm not kidding. I, I literally went back and forth. I bought Lonnie's truck, which I drive. I'll be darned. Um yeah, very, very, 
very impressive case. In fact, uh, you know, Tracy Torme had, had approached me very early on, and he was the one that was kind of gunning for um, Socorro. And I remember thinking, ah, it's an old case, been there, people have done it, or come on. But actually, that was the best move. That was a really good, it really is a very impressive case. Yes. And I didn't realize this, but Jacques was at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in 1964 with, um, in April of 1964 with Dr. Heineck. And he was getting a tour of the base, and Blue Book, and Files. He said that he was telling Heineck to look out for the cases that were labeled, categorized as psychological, because those are the of the uh, close encounters cases that uh, that Jacques was sharing with 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 Heineck, and that is beings, reported beings associated with the craft, and um, which had been primarily, according to Jacques, dismissed part of Project Blue Book in that in that period as psychological. <clears throat> but I think it was a day later. The phone call came in and about a landing at, at Socorro and um, and that's when Heineck flew directly to Socorro and that of course that case so it was the irony of it the timing of it uh, that exactly what Jacques was telling Heineck and then it happened and it was one of the most well-documented close encounters of the third kind in uh, in US history yeah, Lonnie Zamora in law enforcement was dispatched. He he drove out and says that he saw uh, this egg-shaped craft, and uh, he described these beings that came out from the craft. Um, they were out already. They were out already when he when he got it when he rolled up to it. For the people that don't know the story here, can you take a couple of minutes? And I'm not asking for specific accuracy, just a general sense of what Lonnie Zamora saw when he pulled up. Yes. So it was late in the afternoon. I think it was around 5 o'clock, maybe 5.30 p.m., but 5 o'clock. It was April 24th, 1964. Lonnie was in hot pursuit of a speeder. And as he was chasing this guy uh, down this road, Something caught his eye in the sky. It looked like a kind of an explosion or a flash of light. He wasn't quite sure. There was a dynamite shack up to the right on this dirt road that he was concerned that maybe some somebody had gotten in there or somehow the dynamite had exploded. So he uh, terminated his hot pursuit, and he went up this gravel road. And uh, as he got closer, as he, as he sort of leveled off, he went up this hill and spinning tires and dust grazed. He gets to the top of the hill. And he looks down in this little gully, Arroyo, and uh, there was a, an egg-shaped object landed on the ground with, and I'm giving you guys the truncated version, mm-hmm. with two beings standing there. And, um, and Lonnie rolled his window down and looked out the window, and he's looking at them thinking, what am I looking at here? Is this, did a car roll off the, the, the you know, crash? Are there, are there you know, little children hurt? Or, and he's looking, and then one of them, he somehow gets their attention, and one of them turns quickly and looks at him straight in the eyes and appears startled. And um, that apparently profoundly affected Lonnie forever. His wife said he was never the same after this experience. But he drove a little further, and he had to kind of lose sight of the craft as he drove further. He kind of went around, and he got within, I don't know, 50 feet of it, at which point the beans weren't around 
craft was still there. He gets out of the car and he takes two or three steps towards the craft, putting him roughly 35 feet away from this landed object. It looked like an egg, a big egg, mm-hmm. and uh, which kind of reminds me of the Tic Tac that Fravor had seen. But in any case, um, and then the thing takes off with some weird blue flame to about 20 or 30 feet in the air, making a, a rather large noise. But then it goes completely silent and just hovers there. And the flame didn't hit the ground like a normal flame would that would cause rocks and dust. It knifed through the ground like a, like a, like a knife through hot butter. Um, it, and it didn't stir up dust and rocks and everything. So that was really weird. But then it stopped, shut off. He said you could hear a pin drop. It was absolutely silent. It was just hovering there. You could have hit it with a rock. And they're looking at it. And then it uh, slowly flew off to the west towards a place called Magdalena, New Mexico. And uh, when the first military, sorry, when the first police officer got onto the scene, Lonnie said that he thought it too. It was kind of off in the distance, but he didn't too, but he never, he never copped to that. But he got there and it was still in the sky. The, the military and the FBI showed up within an hour. The, the, the everything was the plants were still uh, smoking. There were pod marks and footprints on the ground. Um, just a you know other witnesses, Paul Kraut and, and another guy who had seen the craft. Um, yeah, so very compelling case. And uh, he Lonnie continued in law enforcement then. He only did for not too long. He ended up going out and working for the dump, and he actually explains why in the movie. Okay. His daughter you... said that... Sorry, go ahead. No, you, by all means, go ahead, James. Well, he... Yeah, so Lonnie was taken in that night uh, to the local courthouse where he was uh, spoken to with military officers uh, until the wee hours of the morning. And, uh, and when he came home, and this is according to his wife, Mary, I got her on camera, <clears throat> she said he was white as a ghost and that uh, he didn't want to talk about it. She kept saying, well, what happened? What happened? And he said, oh, nothing. I just had to work late. I, I was working late, okay? I just worked late. She was like, okay, sorry, Jesus. You know. And then the next day, all these newspaper articles started coming out and coming out and coming out everywhere. I mean, he made global news. And she's like, what's this about you and the papers and everything? And he goes, well, what, you know, what you see in the papers is exactly what happened. So the his wife felt that whatever happened to him changed him forever, whatever he saw, mm-hmm. and that when he was debriefed um, afterwards by the military, people from, remember, Holloman Air Force Base is a stone's throw from Socorro. Mm-hmm. So white stand, test, missile testing range and all that, it's right there. Um, and those guys are the ones that came out. And those objects had been seen landing since the 50s all around that area, which, again, we document in the film from original footage. Thank you, David Marler. And um, uh, 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 he was told not to talk about it. In fact, one of the aspects you'll see that the that the Air Force downplayed, and they downplayed it to death, was the fact that that was a close encounter of the third kind because... You know, it's, it's it's one thing to see an an, un, an unidentified object. It's another just another totally to see beings on the ground. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the aspects of of the sighting of the encounter that Air Force jumped handsprings to downplay. 
um, because, you know, that's <laughs> so much more difficult to explain. But, uh, you know, when I went to the National Archives with Ray Stanford, who wrote the book on the case, he reluctantly came with me because, like, nothing new is going to be found. And, of course, we came across, you know, the symbol. We found never-before-seen documents. And you've got these perfect diagrams from the from the military of the of not only the the, the pod imprint but the footprint of the beams where it said it they say it in the diagram like you know and then there's no mention of beams it, it, and then you have statements from the military Quintanilla and others at the at the congressional hearings in 1966 just two years after this landing case okay well documented they're all convinced not of this world. Mm-hmm. I, you know, Heineck certainly was at that point. It's not, you know, defied the terrestrial explanation, put it that way. And then they all just lied right in front of, on camera to everybody. Oh, there's no evidence whatsoever that <laughs> UFOs related to, you know, oh, just no, no, absolutely not. And we, we show that very clearly and very uh, unequivocally in the film um, that, that, that shift and that, that lie, basically. This is James Fox, the brand new documentary film that is more like an Indiana Jones adventure through history, The Phenomenon. The best link I can give you is go to thephenomenonfilm.com and you'll see more information and stay tuned for developments there. And stay tuned for Beta Radio coming up at 12 o'clock noon. I'm Scott Colborn with Jim Shorty. And uh, lots of you folks out there listening uh, all over the world. It's uh, been great to have James Fox, documentary filmmaker, on the program. Uh, James, I've got uh, more things on my list of topics to talk to, uh, but I want to be sure at some point to literally turn the microphone over to you and... um, unscripted to have you say what you think is important for my listening audience live and later on the archive to understand about your work and about phenomenon. Could I give you that opportunity now? Sure. You know, uh, obviously, I, probably a bit more time I can come up with something perhaps a bit more profound. But I'm, I don't want to spring I this on like you. I'm just trying to, to no, make no, sure that you get a chance, okay. James, in your own words to talk about the importance of this. I think that it's time um, the UFO community, myself included, um, put down, uh, uh, stop all the mudslinging and the inner bickering. Uh, it's like we're almost our worst, uh, you know, nightmare, you know, against each other. It's like the, the government doesn't need to step in. <laughs> we're like doing it to ourselves. But I would like to say that I, I, I'd like to see more kindness and help and less competitiveness and to understand that we are all in this together. The truth does matter. And, um, and, uh, let's remember that together we stand and divided we fall. Yeah. Great, uh, great summation there. Um, the Westall primary school in Melbourne, Australia, what is in your perspective unique about that case? Oh, God, broad daylight. Let's see. Over 300 witnesses, <laughs> including besides professor. 
and and then a photograph that was taken a couple days earlier, 17 kilometers away, by an engineer, Polaroid, which he still has today. I mean, that's that's pretty doggone compelling when you have that many credible people, you know. And it 50 plus years later, and they're all saying the same thing, you know, including the science teacher who went quiet for 50 years. Mm-hmm. He talks about why he went quiet. The guy who just 17 kilometers away in broad daylight two days earlier, I think it was two days earlier, uh, had taken a, a wonderful Polaroid, one of, one of the better photographs I've seen. Um, very, very compelling case, you know? My, uh, my friend uh, Preston Dennett um, has written a recent book called uh, Schoolyard UFO Encounters, where he talks about uh, a number of cases from around the world of this UFO phenomenon taking place, as you say, in broad daylight to, of all people, to school kids and teachers. Um, have you had any, any late-night thoughts about the why? Was it just a case of coincidence, or do you think there was something more at work there? In terms of uh, landing at schools? Yeah. Well, let's put it this way. We shoot at them. The militaries around the world generally adopted the policy of shoot, ask questions later. So if I were, and I'm just speculating, mm-hmm. if I were to make contact, who would be the most benign? The most likely I'd like to make contact with? Children? I don't know. I would guess children. Mm-hmm. They're our future. And if there was a long-term timetable on their part to help educate people, what better way to do that than with children who will then grow up, have families, relationships, jobs, with that knowledge of what they saw and experienced? Yeah, and, and you know, it, again, this could be just total speculation and we could be completely off the mark, but I'm just trying to put myself in their shoes, whoever they are. Mm-hmm. Um, that's certainly, it's funny, actually. I, I remember asking this asking this question to uh, Apollo 14 astronaut Andrew Mitchell. Um, and I said, you know, why don't they just land and make themselves known? Mm-hmm. And, you know, being an astronaut, someone who's explored and, and landed on another body, he said, James, do you really think that we would, just imagine if we went out and and I'm not saying again. I'm not saying this is what's happening. Just commenting on the remark by Edgar Mitchell, and he said, "We find another planet with life, and we arrive. Are we just going to overtly land, or are we going to step back and look and observe for a moment? You know, um, and with caution." And uh, and I thought, well, that's a pretty valid uh, point. I probably wouldn't. I probably would stand back and observe. You know, maybe I'd be spotted every now and again. Someone might spot me. Or maybe if I felt like, hey, this is a good arena, this is a good spot to go down and make contact, maybe I would. I'm just saying, maybe. Uh, You mentioned the former astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was really moved by his experience as an astronaut and got involved with um, the Institute of Noetic Sciences and Consciousness Research and I didn't copy down verbatim the quote, but I believe he says on camera with you that uh, that we, meaning 
the government or military has uh, crashed wreckage or artifacts in their possession? Well, remember where if you look up Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut, he actually, believe it or not, grew up right in Roswell, just outside Roswell. Isn't that amazing? He knew, yeah, he knew all those ranchers. So when he came back from the moon, he was famous. And he went back there, and he t- I talked to him about this. And those ranchers told him what, what happened. So he knew from the civilian side what happened in 1947. Mm-hmm. He's also, you know, uh, his connections with NASA and the intelligence and his military background. You know, the guy the, he knew. He knew. This is um, James Fox, the documentary filmmaker. Uh, his credits include UFOs, 50 Years of Denial, Out of the Blue, I Know What I Saw, and this brand new release, The Phenomenon. The link, again, to get more information to actually see the trailer that we played twice is thephenomenonfilm.com. Tell me about uh, a gentleman on camera whose name is Frank Manor. What did he see or experience? That's part of the 1966 landings in Michigan, that wave. Mm-hmm. And that led to Dr. Hynek coming up with the term swamp gas. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the largest press release, certainly in, in Michigan, ever. And it was an opportunity missed. And one of, uh, he was one of the witnesses, this guy, Frank Manor, and he apparently walked right up to this thing that was sitting on the ground. He describes the colors and what it looked like. Uh, And there were a handful of other uh, Washtenaw County, other witnesses, quite a few, actually, including police officers. And then Heineck, and that was two years after the landing at Socorro, although I don't think that anyone saw beans. I didn't hear any any accounts of beans, but Mm -hmm. certainly a landed flying saucer. There were diagrams. And we found color footage of that case, uh, which we include in the film. Um, but yeah, he walked up to a craft that was landed on the ground, and then Heineck went up in front of the world and said, swamp gas. We, we had Dr. So that's, what led to the, that's what led to the congressional hearing. And, and Heineck lamented later that it was one of his biggest mistakes mm-hmm. that he made. We had Dr. Heineck, uh, James... Uh, to Lincoln, Nebraska in the 1980s for a conference and had a private dinner for him uh, that was memorable. I had a chance to spend some uh, time with him in private. And so I asked him about this, this famous swamp gas quote. And he said, Scott, I'd arrived there in Michigan on location and we'd been up most of the night looking at information, reports, data. It was early the next morning and I came out and there was this swarm of reporters all shouting questions. Dr. Hynek, what do you think, Dr. Hynek? So he says, well, we're looking at the information and the possibilities include, he went through about five or six and then he said swamp gas and he said it was remarkable because all the reporters' eyes suddenly got big and in mass they turned around and ran for the nearest phone or their car and didn't even wait for the rest of his his summation here. They realized, I've got my hot button, I've got the story here. 
And he, as you say, he did again lament the fact that he even said anything. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I, Jacques had given me... Jacques was supposed to go with uh, him, Heineck, for that one. Jacques said that history would have been different had he done that. Mm-hmm. James, yeah. do you... I mean, you know... Sorry, go ahead. Do you think there are people uh, that are out there right now, uh, perhaps even listening to our broadcast, that have more information about this in terms of personal encounters? Would you like to hear from any people? You mean people? like civilians? Or, you mean yeah. Civilians, or civilians military, military, even politicians. Oh, gosh. Are you kidding me? This is the tip of the iceberg. I just had a friend of mine that I've known for some time, send me a 1981 article, uh, local, where I grew up, in the area where I grew up, of an encounter with a disc that it's the actual article, the original article. And I'm sitting there thinking, Jerry, why haven't you told me about this? He's like, well, you never asked. Like, (laughs) how many other people are there like you? And he talks about the psychic thing what caused him to get up in the middle of the night, walk out to the window and go outside and wife and well, this thing like kind of communicated with them telepathically. He talked about the little blue lights around the bottom and mm-hmm. how it blew off. And really fascinating, you know? It's just, and then you wonder how many people are there out there like him, like the guy I've known forever, never told me, walking around with this information. I'm sure it's a lot. When people see your film, I would love to be the little birdie or fly in the wall for what happens after that film when people go to the coffee shop, go to the restaurant, they sit and talk about this. I would love to be privy. And I hope it generates um, a very intelligent and fruitful discussion of the, uh, of the subject here. Um, I'm going to see you again uh, this November, November 6th through the 8th in Laughlin, Nevada at the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. And I can't wait. You're going to be talking more about your film. Oh, did I lose you? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, I thought you were going to carry on. I didn't know you hit a, a period there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can never say no to Paula. I love her. She's a beautiful person, a beautiful being. Um and that's going to be very exciting. It's going to be, let's see, September, October. Yeah, so the film is going to be in full swing at that point. Uh, you know, it's going to be a pretty exciting time. And I was going to say, if you want, in uh, at the end of this month, I can get 1091, my distributor, to send you a private link that will only allow you to watch it, and it will expire in a day or two, um, self-destruct, so to speak. So they have a very secure server, and then you can uh, you can watch the film, and then have me back on, and we can talk some more. Wow, are you kidding? Of course, yes, please. I'm jumping <laughs> up and down. Oh yeah, stay I, in touch with me. I told Jim off microphone that you can tell I'm grinning ear from ear. I am really enjoying the show and in my element today. He, he really is, and, and this is his favorite subject. Um, oh, is, cool. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. James, as we close down here, um, again, I'd like to give the microphone to you. So in, in this moment, I'd like to have you speak to our audience um, about whatever is near and dear to you and close to you right now. Well, I, I just say that, 
you know, people often say, you know, why why is this topic important to you? Mm-hmm. Why does it matter? Why should I care? And I say, well, if there is significant evidence being withheld from us, the general public, um, that would give us a better idea of who we are and where we come from and why we're here, or quite simply give us a perspective of the larger picture, and that information was being kept from us, wouldn't you like to know? I've got my hand up. Me too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, well, I feel really strongly about it. It's like this is not, this information doesn't belong in the hands of a handful of people. Um, and, and even if it's a little scary, you know, even if it's the, the unknown aspect of it, who cares? It's what's happening. And I'd like to know. I'd like my son to know. Mm-hmm. And I feel that every man, woman, and child on the planet has a right to know. And that's why I do what I do. And I won't walk away from it. Respect, James. Thank you so much. Um, the very best from us to you. And um, have a great weekend. And uh, try to get some rest on. You're doing a lot of radio shows. So I'm going to see you in November. I look forward to it. And stay in touch. I'm serious. I'll get a private copy for you at the end of February, early March. Okay, it's a deal, my friend. Thank All you, right, James. Keep on keeping on. Thanks for having me on. Bye. James Fox, the best link that I can give you to see that trailer and to stay in touch for more information is thephenomenonfilm.com. So, Jim, let me get some feedback from you. You were able to, to watch the, the trailer here in the, in the studio here. What do you think? Uh, well, all, uh, from a technical standpoint, the trailer looks very polished, very well done. Yeah. In stereo, as I point to my headphones, uh, the movie looks really exciting. Yeah, the sound itself, um, as a musician, I loved the sound. Uh, as you said, mm-hmm. yes, it's very, very, it keeps you right there in the right. edge of your seat. Yes. And I really get the sense that, that this is going, going to be something like an Indiana Jones documentary. That Yeah, this, uh, this one might be a game changer. It's not just um, a single camera and two people talking. There's a lot more going on here. Uh, we've talked today about a number of high points. Uh, he had access to Chris Mellon, the former Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, uh, Ben Richardson, the New Mexico governor, mm-hmm. former U.S. Energy Secretary, uh, John Podesta, White House Chief of Staff for Clinton, advisor to Obama, and former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, uh, Jacques Vallée, the esteemed uh, Dean of Ufology. He had a chance to talk with Edgar Mitchell before he passed. Mm-hmm. Um, he did boots on the ground research. Again, James, uh, I think one of the things that, that maybe Paula and James have in, in common is that they are both people, they want to go to where it's happening. They yeah. want to talk to witnesses eyeball to eyeball and get that sense. And I have the great respect for Paula Harrison and for James. So as I said, folks, if if you want to hear more from James Fox, he'll be one of the keynote speakers at the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. And the link for that is starworksusa.com. 
That takes place November 6th through the 8th in Laughlin, Nevada. I'm going to be there again. I can't wait to have a bunch of you people show up there and we'll share a cup of coffee and talk further. Hey, Jim, what do you got planned for the rest of the weekend? Oh, gosh, might get out and enjoy the weather a little bit. We've the got, reason uh, is? Yeah, 53 today and uh, likewise tomorrow, and then it gets cold again. I'm looking out here and seeing bright blue sky. And bright blue sky. Everybody walking by the studio is grinning. So. Smiling, yeah, yep. yeah. And, you know, this is a neat way to start February it because is. we've got this really great weather. We know that February can be very volatile, uh, but this is mm-hmm. a great way to start things. Yeah, they're talking the S word a little bit later in the month here yeah. again. So, uh, Every yeah. day, more daylight and one day closer to spring. That's right. Okay, stay tuned for uh, Beta Radio. That's coming up here at 12 noon. And uh, my thanks again to Charlene from the Capital Humane Society. Preston Dennett with his segment, The Seen and the Unseen, and our special main guest, uh, James Fox. Until next week, folks, I'm Scott Colborn. Stay curious and walk in beauty.